Well, good morning. What a great hope we have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the great hope that we have. Father, I thank you for the certain day in the future when we will be enjoying your victory together without hindrance. Father, I pray that this morning you would bring that hope in reality into our lives. Uh, like a, an ointment that has to be applied to a wound, I pray that your, your grace would be administered to our hearts here this morning. Thank you for your word. Pray that you'd bless it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. About a week ago, uh, sitting at the kitchen table and uh, read uh, a brief article in the paper about um, two young people who had been driving and got in an accident and uh, it was a 21-year-old, 20-year-old, and the 21-year-old was killed. And I confess that for me, I mean, I certainly felt it. I had, what an awful situation, but there was a little bit of smugness, a little bit of, I don't know, pride or something. You know, it's, I'm sure glad that we're not the kind of people who have things like that happen to them. And then I was meeting with some friends on campus where I work this week um, on Thursday and discovered that the mom of the 21-year-old girl who died is a friend of a friend of mine. And all of a sudden, it changed everything. <laughs> From feeling like, oh, you know, they weren't wearing seatbelts, whatever, you know, thinking kind of a judgmental, to all of a sudden, wow, what a tragedy. I mean, what a horrible thing to have happen. One day, they're wrestling with the normal issues of, of moving into adulthood and questions about life and what's going to happen and decisions we're making. And the next day, this mom is picking out a casket for her daughter. And I think, what a crisis. I mean, it's just, it's, it's horrible to think about. And I think, what do you say? What do you say to somebody that's in crisis that gives real hope, not just the, you know, the comfort, I feel for you, and wow, this must be hard, but what do you say that gives real hope in crisis? Now, that's a major crisis. It's hard to imagine a bigger one. I mean, there, this, is, this is a huge deal. Some crises are a lot smaller, and yet they're still very real to people who experience them. And so um, we got a new puppy. Um, people have said that it's a good thing that puppies are cute because otherwise they'd never live to be you know, adult dogs. And you know, when this puppy doesn't quite make it outside in time, this is little stuff. But you know, when it's mine situation, <laughs> you know, it's hard not to let this crisis take over and to get angry at this puppy like it should know better. And, you know, and, and I, crises come in all categories. But when they're mine, they're very real. And so I wonder, even for myself, what do I say to myself when I encounter a crisis, large or small, that offers true hope? Not just, hey, I feel for you, but true hope. To explore that this morning, we're going to look at the story of a woman in crisis. Uh, her name is Hannah. And so if you grab a Bible and turn to 1 Samuel, if you grab a Bible from the, the pew in front of you, it's on page 202. Uh, 202, this is 1 Samuel. Uh, chapter 1. Let me just set the stage for you a little bit because this is written about a, a people who were in crisis. Uh, the people of Israel had had a wonderful past. Great things happened. God delivered them out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt and he brought them into their own land and they conquered the place and, and were able to take over the land and they established themselves there and what a wonderful thing that was. And yet from that point on, for generations, the place just kept getting worse. These, these enemies were now powerful again, and they were, they were attacking and, and, and just smothering the Israelites. 
And the Israelites were fighting each other, tribe against tribe, and, and the moral decay was just horrible in the place. And people had to wonder, are we through as a people? Right? They were in crisis. They, had, they didn't know what was next. And so it's in this context that then we have the story of 1 Samuel, which becomes the story of the formation of the monarchy. And it goes from this chaotic, uh, messy, awful place to having a king, all the tribes united around this king, they have victory over their enemies, and they have great prosperity. And, and 1 Samuel is a book that takes us from this, this great trouble, this crisis, into this, this wonderful place of the monarchy and great success and, and blessing by God. The book is full of, of, of heroes, of warriors, of, of battles, of kings, and it all starts with a woman who's married and can't have kids. A very simple beginning to a powerful book, and yet I'm convinced that this story sets the stage for what this country would become. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So let's stop there for a second. So we're told about this man, Elkanah, and he's, uh, it seems a pretty prominent person. Turns out eventually we discover he's rather wealthy, and, and he has quite a, a pedigree. He can point back to his ancestors who, you know, generations that he says, I follow in the line of important people. He has these two wives, and it seems, the text doesn't exactly say this, but it seems pretty clear, here's what happened. He married Hannah. And after a period of time, it became clear that she couldn't do what she was supposed to do, and that is to have a son to carry on the family line. It was just in the paper yesterday about couples dealing with infertility and what do we do about it? And, and there are you know, so many good options today to, to deal with challenging situations. In their day, there was one option that commonly people took, and that was marry somebody else. You hang on to the first wife, and clearly this wasn't God's plan, but this is what people would do. You hang on to the first wife, but you marry somebody else and see if you can get kids that way. And so that's what this man did. His first wife, Hannah, after a period of time, couldn't have kids. He married another, and things worked out for him. He had an heir. Verse 3, now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So let's stop there for a second. So the family was a family that participated in worship, and in those days you would go to Shiloh, uh, eventually you would go to Jerusalem to worship, but in those days that was the, the main worship center where the ark was, where the, the tabernacle was. And so they would go there. And in that day, they didn't eat a lot of meat, right? Animals are too precious to kill them to eat their meat. 
But there's one key time when you'd get to eat meat, and that is when you would sacrifice. When they'd bring an animal sacrifice, some of the sacrifice was burned up, uh, depending upon the sacrifice, some of it was given to the priests, and some of it was given back to the person offering the sacrifice to enjoy the meat as a blessing of God. And so this is a unique time, and, and certainly an important time as a family to go and to worship God and to enjoy his blessing. And a key aspect of that was to bless the family by saying, here, enjoy the meat. And so, so Elkanah gives out the meat in portions to the family. And you notice what it says here now. It says he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. <laughs> right? Peninnah, is, is, she has been able to produce many children for Elkanah, and Hannah still none. And, and, and we're told that Elkanah loves her. And so, actually, the, the Hebrew is a little bit challenging here, but in general, people say that he, he seems to have given a double portion to her to say, I really do love you, and, and to try to express this honor of her. And it's stated that God closed her womb. And so Peninnah, she is awful. I mean, she is just terrible. She, she says, you know, I'm sure she says, hey, Hannah, come check out all my kids you hear I'm pregnant again? You know, she just rubs it. And she does everything she can to make like, life awful for Hannah. And so especially when they'd go to the feast, this was a horrible time for Hannah. Terrible time. It just tore her up. And clearly this is going on for years, right? It was probably years before it, it was clear that she wasn't going to have kids. And then Peninnah has had many. This has been going on for years. And every year it seems to get worse. And Elkanah says to her, why are you weeping? And, and, and he says, why is your heart sad? And, and it could be that why do you have a bitter heart? And he says, you know, am I not worth to you more than 10 sons? And sometimes people read this and just think, boy, here's a husband that doesn't get it. I mean, you know, he says, here's some more food. You ought to be happy now. You ought to be happy with me. Right? I don't think that's it. I think he really does love her. But he's saying, I'm not holding this against you. Right? What we have together is worth more than having an heir come from you. It solves it for him, it seems, but not for her, right? And sometimes life really does bring us very low. Sometimes we encounter things like she does, and it is just awful beyond words. Sometimes it's how it feels, and we know that in a week I'm going to be beyond this problem, but I was at Meyer yesterday, and, and the guy at the checkout counter, we were standing there, and I heard some kids, you know, uh, letting their displeasure be known to their parents. And, and the guy working there said, ah, it's Saturday. <laughs> you know, Saturday in Myers, a time when it's challenging for some parents who were there. But, you know, that crisis is very real, right? The crisis of what it takes to, you know, yet again, this kid has done what I've told him so many times not to do, right? And whatever the crisis is, it's very real. Sometimes life really does bring us low. And you as a church, as I've heard here, have experienced this in a lot of ways. Life sometimes really does bring us low. And that's where Hannah was. So the question is, what does Hannah do? Verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me 
and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Stop there for a second. So Hannah goes and prays. We're not told if she'd prayed on previous times. My guess is that she did, that she was a woman who continued to pray, but we're told about this special time that she did come to pray, and she prayed in bitterness, right? This, she, she wasn't just going through liturgy and just saying, I know I'm supposed to do this, so I'll come and do this. She was crying out from the depth of who she was, and she was crying out. She says, Lord of hosts, if you will look upon me, and, and, and actually in, in, in the Hebrew it emphasizes, will you really look at me, right? And, and I've known the experience as a parent that sometimes I say to my kids, I need to see your eyes, right? I need your attention. That's what Hannah is saying to God. God, I want to see your eyes. Will you really look at me? And then she says, will you remember me? That's a loaded term in the Old Testament. When God remembers people, it's his commitment to act on their behalf. Right? She says, God, will you remember me and not forget me? She says, God, I need your attention. I need you to look my way. And then she says, will you give your servant a son? Here's your request. I need to produce a son. It's been said that the greatest crisis for a married woman in those days was not to be able to have children. The, the greatest crisis, and this was hers, and she says, God, will you meet me in this greatest crisis and do what I need? Then she makes this vow. She says, God, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. Uh, and, and she uses this expression, she says, and, and we'll never cut his hair. And this was a, a vow that, that people would sometimes make, the Nazarite vow that says, Somebody is dedicated to God for a period of time. And during that period of time, you don't cut their hair, they don't drink any wine, and a number of other things that they don't do as a symbol of total dedication to God. And she says, this son, if you give him to me, will be totally yours for his whole life. He's dedicated to you. Now, it sounds a lot like she's making a deal with God, right? I've studied economics with my kids through high school and, you know, figure out what free exchange is and you've got something I want, I've got something you want, we decide we exchange and everybody's happy. Sounds a little bit like that's what Hannah is doing. You know, God, I want a son, you can give him to me. If you give him to me, you probably want him back, so I'll give him back to you. And it's not like God's going to say, hey, could you throw in a few oxen with that and then maybe we'll be okay. God's not making deals, right? This isn't, what do I need to find that God really wants and I'll give it to him so he gives me something. I think what Hannah's expressing is this. If you give me a son, it's clear he's really yours, right? There's no human way for this to happen. If you give me a son, he's actually your son after all, and I will just express that by the reality of saying, I give him back to you because he's actually yours. What I love seeing in Hannah here is out of her deep bitterness, she prayed. She kept going back to God and saying, God, I need your help. Will you look at me, God? She was a person of faith in this. She kept going back to God. She said, you're the only one that can solve this problem, and she kept going back to God. When life brought her very low, she prayed. And so what happens? Verse 12, now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, She was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. 
Stop there for a second. So she goes and she prays, and it was very unusual in that day to pray silently. But she went and she prayed, but it was, she didn't just sit in the corner. It seems that she was rather dramatic in her prayer because of the pain in her heart. And she really was praying out to God in, in, in an animated way. And Eli sees this and thinks, you know, here's somebody who's drunk. Now, earlier we were told who else was serving as priest at Shiloh. And they were Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two sons, and they were terrible. They were awful priests. They would do terrible things in terms of dishonoring God and horrible practices. And so actually it's no surprise that if Eli sees somebody behaving like this in the temple, he would think, well, they're just like my sons, right? They're just drunk here. And so Eli says, this is, this is what I expect here. Hannah was not what Eli expected. So she explains, verse 15, but Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. And here the pain she expresses, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I've... I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So she explains to Eli, I am here in great pain. That's why you see what you do. I'm not drunk. It is out of great pain that I pray. And we're not told that she ever explained to Eli what the prayer request was. And my guess is she didn't. But Eli said, ah, so if you are really praying out to God in this way, then he says, go in peace. May God's peace be on you. And he says, may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. Seems repeatedly in the Bible that people in a position of influence, uh, like a high priest, sometimes God has them do things they don't realize what they're doing. They, he has them fulfill his will, and they think they're doing their own thing. They, they don't get it. And I'm convinced that was happening here when Eli said these words. I don't think he knew really what all the implications were of what he was saying, but he said, May God grant your request. And he was expressing the will of God. And Hannah heard this. And she was released from her pain. Nothing's happened yet, right? No miracle has happened yet except for this miracle. She is released from her bitter heart. She is released from her pain. And she gets up, she goes, she eats, because she hasn't been eating because of the pain. She eats and she goes home fine, right? An amazing thing has happened, even though nothing, in some sense, has happened. But God has done a work in her heart at the word of Eli. Eli says, go in peace. And she does. So verse 19, Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. So they went home and the Lord remembered her. What she asked for, God, remember me, don't forget me. She went home. God remembers her. She gets pregnant. She gives birth to a son. Can you imagine? Go back a ways. She gets married, and it's probably a couple years while she slowly comes to the realization this isn't happening. The pain of her husband marrying somebody else, and then the pain of that somebody else having kids and multiple kids (laughs) and rubbing it into her. This is a decade or more of bitter pain for this woman 
and it's come to an end. It's over. She has produced a son, right? She has given birth to an heir. She has done, she has solved the greatest problem that she has in life because God has been at work and she expresses that. She says, I'm calling him Samuel. And, and there are different takes on what exactly Samuel means. Some people look at it and say this means the name of God. So here's a hint when you're reading the Old Testament and, and you see a name that ends in E-L, L, that means God. So almost always when you see a name like Daniel, God is my judge. So here's another name, it ends in E-L and it means the name of God. But it's also a play on the word Sha'al, which means to ask. And that's how Hannah explains it. She says, I'm gonna name my son, this is the one I asked for, from God, right? So every time she calls him, it's the reminder, this is the one I asked for from God, right? God heard her, God remembered her, and she names Samuel to say that that is the reality. So now, the other part of the story. The question is, what does she do now that she has the son that she promised to give back to God? Verse 21, then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. So stop there for a second. So the family goes up and the whole family goes. This emphasis, this is the time when we celebrate who we are as a family. And they all go, but she says, no, I'm not going yet. I'm gonna wait until I'm ready to leave the child for good. And, and uh, it seems that in those days, people would nurse a child until he's two or three. Right? So this is a couple of years that they say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do this right. I'm not going up until I go and leave him for good. Elkanah says, okay, do it. And he says this funny expression, may the Lord confirm his word. And depending on what translation you have, uh, sometimes it says, may the Lord confirm your word. And it's quite a different thing. May the Lord confirm his word, may the Lord confirm your word. Well, it's a fascinating thing. Turns out in Hebrew, it definitely says, may the Lord confirm, confirm his word. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Syriac translation, it actually says, may the Lord confirm your word. And it's an interesting puzzle. What do we go with? Well, one of the rules of dealing with manuscripts of the Bible when there's a disagreement is in general, you ought to go with the harder one. Why would that be? Why don't you go with the easier one? Well, because if people have said, oh, maybe there was a mistake here, they do exactly what we do and say, let's go with the easier one. So in general, if a text is easier to deal with, it probably isn't the original because it probably got easier when people cleaned it up. For a number of reasons, I think it really does make sense to let's go with, may the Lord confirm his word. But then the question is, what does that mean? It makes more sense to say, may the Lord help you keep the vow that you've made. What does it mean for the Lord to keep his word? I think we'll see some of that in Hannah's prayer that we'll look at in a minute. But I think Elkanah is doing exactly what Eli did. And that is, he is speaking more prophetically than he knows. Because we discover about Samuel that he is known for a major thing in the life of Israel is that God's word came to Israel through Samuel. And in fact, we're told that God let none of his words fall to the ground, right? That Samuel's word coming from God stood. 
And that's exactly what Elkanah said. May God confirm his word, right? And, and so that is the blessing that comes and is true about this child. So she waits. She waits a couple of years, and then the time comes, verse 24. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I've also dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So you're gonna have a child dedication here in in a couple of weeks. Uh, This is a tough one. A three-year-old, and she says, and he's gonna stay at the temple. Stay at the temple with a priest who has two very unruly sons. (laughs) Not a wonderful setting, but in faith she says, this is my vow, this is what I'm gonna do. And so she comes back, and I'm not convinced that Eli knew much of the story, but I'm sure he thinks back and says, oh, I remember you were the one I thought was drunk, and I gave you a blessing. She says, here is the blessing, here is the child that I asked for, right, his name. Here's the one I asked for. And then she says, verse 28, so I have also dedicated him to the Lord. And if you have a different translation, like English Standard Version, it actually says, I have lent him to the Lord. And I have a footnote in my Bible that says, literally, it is lent. Strange thing to say. She says, I'm gonna lend my son to God. Doesn't sound like the normal relationship between people and God, but but this is a fascinating thing. In Hebrew, the root word for lend is exactly as, this, as the same word to ask, right? So when my neighbor comes and says, could I borrow a hammer, I lend it to him. They ask, I lend, right? So it's, it's, a, it's the two sides of the same thing. And that's exactly what Hannah says. I asked for this child for God, from God. And so I will lend him back to God. It was an open-handedness. And you realize what she's doing. She's going back exactly to the place she was at the beginning. Not having an heir. Right? This is a child given to God. It's not a child given to her husband. She, by faith, is stepping right back into the situation. She says, God, I'm trusting you, not the gift that you've given me. And so she hands him back to God to live there. And the child worships there. The child serves there. And then Hannah sings this song. Chapter two, then Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And with him, actions are weighed. Let's stop there for a second. She says, I'm rejoicing. There's a fascinating thing about this song. She never says, I'm rejoicing because God gave me a son. She doesn't rejoice in the gift. She rejoices in the giver. She says, God is a God who rescues. God is a God of salvation. God is a God who lifts me up. Right? So she says, I'm exalting in God. And then she actually says, my horn is exalted. It's an unusual expression for us, but a horn kind of like on, you know, on an animal with a horn, it's, it's a sign of, of power, of stability, of, of, of strength. And her horn was as low as it could be. She had no sense of, of her own worth or value or, or, or place in life. 
And she says, God has exalted. God has literally lifted up my horn. He has given me a sense of who I am and that I'm somebody that he cares about. God has lifted up my soul. She says, my mouth speaks boldly. Different translations might say, even my, my, my mouth derides my enemies. And you can imagine her now trash-talking Peninnah, saying, oh, you got lots of kids, but look at the son I have. Yeah, it's not that at all. She's not, she's not lauding this over her. Actually, it's significant. She talks about plural enemies, right? She's not saying, now it's my chance to get back at her. In a Hebrew sense, if what you had to say had no merit, was clearly false, you closed your mouth. And she says, now my mouth is wide. I can proclaim that my God is a saving God. She's no longer, but until this point, she felt like she couldn't say that. And she says, now I can boldly proclaim that my God is a God who hears. My God is a God who lifts up those who are low. She says, that's because I rejoice in his salvation. She says, there's nobody else like this God. And I love the expression, there is no rock like our God. The rock was the symbol of that which could protect you against anything. Nothing could harm you if you were hidden in a rock. She says, there is no place for safety like our rock. And so she says, now close your mouth, enemies of God. And again, this is a plural command, boast no more. You who are arrogant, God is a knowing God. He sees, he remembers, and he will judge. She expresses that God is a God who has brought her joy because he is a saving God who has lifted up her soul. Now she goes on to this fascinating section in which she says, in life, sometimes there are great reversals. People who are as, as well off as they can be and people who are as bad off as they can be, and they swap places. And just look at the number of different ways she expresses this. The bow, this is verse four. The, bows, or the bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Sheol is the place of the dead. So he brings down to the place of dead and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. Stop there for a second. So you hear these repeated statements of reversal of those who had it made and those who were in terrible places and they swapped. God is not opposed to those who are rich. He is not opposed to those who have a lot of kids. He's not opposed to those who are strong. But this we know, God is opposed to the proud. Right? And, and very often those who have think they deserve it. Right? And God is opposed to them. But God is on the side of the humble, of those who are low and know it and are willing to say, God, I need your help. God is opposed to the proud, but he lifts up the humble. And that's why Jesus says, very many who are first will become last and the last will become first. This, this theme of, of the great reversal is throughout the Bible and here she expresses it so well. And what's the foundation for this reversal? Middle of verse eight, we continue on. Four, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. 
Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. She says, God is the creator. God is the one who has total authority over everything. And so he runs the world however he chooses. And one of the ways that God chooses to run the world is he lets the proud be proud for a time. And then he brings them down. And he allows the humble to be in challenging circumstances for a time, but eventually he brings them up. Now, as I said, Hannah went home that day having left behind her only child. Years later, years later, because we're told she kept coming back and bringing, bringing uh, robes for Samuel, but years later she had other kids. But she walked back into this because she says, I can trust this God who will raise those who are low. Now, you notice a fascinating thing in this last part? She says he will give strength to his king. An interesting thing to say because they don't have a king and they hadn't talked about kings yet. Right? That's to come. But prophetically, she's expressing that when we have a king, the king's pride and power and strength aren't our hope. Our hope is in a God of salvation who lifts up those who cry out to him. And I think that's what the writer of Samuel is setting up for us in understanding the foundation of this kingdom is that God lifts up those who cry out to him. That God hears, God remembers, God sees, and when people cry out to him, out of their trouble, out of their humility, he lifts them up. That's the kind of God that we have. Now when we think about the challenges that we have, when I think about the, this friend of a friend who, who lost her daughter, is her daughter to come back to life? I don't think so. When we pray about things that deeply Harm, hurt us, the, the pain that's in us. Maybe it is having kids. Does that mean that God will give us kids? Maybe. But maybe not. But this I know. God lifts up our souls. God lifts us up. And someday, as we were singing this morning, we will see clearly that, that all is right, all is well, because our God is a God who lifts us up as we cry out to him. And that's the, the message of salvation itself. Right? God is not here to get those who are good and doing well. God is here to lift up those who are low, who cry out to him. And so I have something to say that's a message of true hope. I can't say the pain's going to go away. I can't say it'll all be okay someday. It'll all make sense to you someday. But this I can say. Our God is a God who will lift up those who cry out to him. He will exalt your sense of who you are because in him you are highly valued. I'm going to take a moment to pray now. And what I would like you to do is to apply this truth, this salve, this medicine to that pain that either is yours or is someone's that you know and you care for, that God would lift up. Take a moment to pray silently and then I'll close this. Father in heaven, I pray that your spirit would be active in the hearts of your people right now. Father, I pray that you would meet those who are crying out on their own behalf or the behalf of others that they love, uh, of, of their low estate, of their trouble, of the pain, of the fear, of the sorrow, whatever it might be. And Father, I pray that they would have your peace. Father, I pray that you would hear their requests 
And Father, I pray that you would make good your word, that you are a God who lifts up those who are low as they cry out to you. Father, I thank you so much that you are a God who cares for the poor, who cares for the barren, who cares for those who are frightened and lost and confused. And Father, I thank you that not only do you care, but because of the death and resurrection of your Son, you rescue us. You give us true life. In this life, we know your presence and so often see your goodness, and yet so often we struggle to see what's going on. Yet one day, Father, our faith will be sight, and we will recognize the amazing wonder of your glory, of your love, as you lift our souls to be with you forever, to serve and to worship in your presence. Father, we thank you for providing the way through your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. May you indeed today go in God's great peace. Amen.